Good evening and welcome to Mining the Riches of the Parsha. Tonight is Thursday night, November 4th, 2021, and I am so grateful to every one of you for being here this evening. It is a tremendous pleasure to me to be able to study with you tonight. The first piece that I'd like to share with you is based on part of an important letter written by the Rav, Rav Yosef Soloveitchik, in 1972. Now, it deals in part, generally, with some of the themes of Bereshis, the book of Genesis, but it also addresses another critical topic that I feel we must address now. And that is, in March, 2020, there was a rupture between synagogues and Jews. It was necessary to protect health due to COVID. But since that moment, I have continuously considered and I am frequently asked when COVID finally eases, Will Jews come back to shul? Now, after thinking about this for over a year and a half and discussing it with many, many others here and in other places, my answer is, I don't know. Certainly there is a core. Those who are attending shul now, who have tried to attend this entire time through difficulty and limitations and inconvenience for whom prayer is a priority, may they be blessed and may they increase and may they deserve reward for their tremendous effort. But I fear that some Jews for whom attending shul is not a priority, that they will continue to use COVID as an excuse not to return. Even though attending a DAF with our precautions is certainly safer than going to the store, eating at a restaurant, visiting with friends, going to school or traveling. But I fear that COVID is still being used as an excuse not to return to shul by many of those for whom it's just not a priority. Or many people will just have fallen out of the habit of coming to shul. I don't know. But I am certain that I and all of us and throughout the Jewish world must devote ourselves to getting those Jews back. Now, I see three components to this issue. And hopefully, the reason I want to discuss it with you tonight, hopefully, COVID is truly easing. And working on these three components 
should be our priority now. Number one, we need to re-engineer the synagogue. We start with a blank canvas. Everything except what is required by halacha, by Jewish law, everything is up for discussion. The length of the services, the style, the format, what we include, what we leave behind. Again, aside from what halacha requires, but there is so much to learn from having halted shul and from holding services with various limitations as health requirements evolved. So we need to collaborate. We need to discuss and apply these ideas in a smart, responsive manner. We have begun this process, and I ask for your input. I invite your ideas as we figure this out together. That's number one. Component number two, we need to improve and showcase those aspects of attending shul that people will readily value. Socializing, enjoying spending time at Kiddush, which should be expanded, reminding people of synagogue's superb ability to celebrate and to console as a community, to remove loneliness, to create friends, to network, to find opportunities to help others and to be helped by others to offer opportunities for prayer that are spiritual and inspiring with abundant music and joy, to offer classes that are exciting and challenging and transformative, and to offer programming and events that are creative and can't be found elsewhere. There is so much that we do well, that we do better than anywhere else. We need to improve it. We need to showcase it to attract people back. But the third component is the topic I want to address tonight. And that is to remind ourselves <clears throat> and to share with others the existential benefits of joining at shul for prayer. So in this letter, part of which I want to share with you, the Rav's words written in 1972 are just as if not more relevant to us today. He begins, the synagogue nowadays is not the most popular institution in the Jewish community. The Jewish community is not too much in love with shul. 
the members of this community stay away from the synagogue. So it's the Rav's goal in this letter, and it's our goal, to change that through a deeper understanding of the synagogue as an idea, not just as an institution, as a vision. We need to explain what tefillah is and what Beit HaKneset, the classic term for a synagogue, the house dedicated to prayer, what does that mean? and how deeply rooted these ideas are in our philosophy of man and his destiny. So let's start with an enigmatic passage in the Talmud. The Talmud says, Mesechta Shabbos, there are two mistakes, sins, that are, that are considered serious by the rabbis in the Talmud. The first is, one who refers to the Aaron HaKodesh, the holy ark in which the Torah scrolls are kept in the shul. One who refers to that as a closet or a cabinet. And one who refers to a Beit HaKnesses which literally means a, play, a house of assembly, a house of gathering, which is the original term for a shul, for a synagogue, refers to that as a Beit Am, a house of the people. Now, the first violation is relatively straightforward. Aron HaKodesh, the holy ark, refers to the place where the Torah scroll is kept because the Torah is the holiest and the place where it is kept is holy. For someone to refer to that as a closet or a cabinet is to remove the holiness from it, to remove the sanctity from it. It is as if they are referring to the Torah in secular terms without any religious or spiritual component. And that's an act of sacrilege to secularize the Torah. That we understand. But what does the Talmud mean? What do the rabbis mean when they criticize one who refers to a Beit Knesset as a Beit Am? On the surface, the two terms are not so different. Beit Knesset, a house of assembly, a house of gathering. Beit Am, a house of the people. What is the semantic difference between those two terms that causes the rabbis to approve of the first but condemn the second? The book of Beratius, the Torah, the book of Genesis begins with creation, culminating with the creation of man, and man, Adam and Eve, Adam and Chava, are placed in Gan Eden, the Garden of Eden. And then they were cursed by God and they were expelled 
from paradise. And man became a homeless being. Writes the Rav, exiled man or homeless man must pray. He has a strong need to pray. Through prayer, he redeems himself from his loneliness. To pray means to return home. In explaining this, the Rav asks, why does Jewish law require a synagogue to begin with? Why isn't it sufficient just to pray anywhere, in a field, at home? And yes, of course, a person can pray anywhere. But why does Jewish law show a preference that a person should try to pray in a synagogue? And by the way, that's not only when praying together with a minion. Even if a person is praying by themselves, it is still preferable, according to Jewish law, to pray in a synagogue. Why? It's not because of the physical structure. There are some shuls that are more beautiful, some shuls that are less beautiful, but the structure of the building does not interest Jewish law. Yes, you want to make it nice. But there is no aspect of Jewish law that applies to the building itself. But the Rav explains the word bayit, or bait, same word, has a double connotation. It means house, which is a physical structure that has walls and a floor and a ceiling. But by it, or base, also means home. And we make a mistake when we translate Beit HaKneset as the house of prayer. That's not true. Because there's no need for a house of prayer. I can pray to God anywhere. Beta Knesses is not a house of prayer, but a home of prayer. Prayer is coming home. The home of man. The home of homeless man that alleviates the status of of homelessness. Beta Knesset is not the home of God. God doesn't need a home. Beta Knesset, a synagogue, is the home of man where he keeps an appointment with God in prayer. God comes to that home in order to keep his appointment with man. That's Shul. That's a Beta Knesset. But who is gathered there? 
Who is it that is gathered in this place of gathering, this home of prayer? Well, there are two terms that we're familiar with. There's a term minion. <clears throat> now the word minion literally means number. It refers to the number 10. And it refers to the fact that when 10 Jewish adult men are gathered, then all of those who gather, men, women, children, are able to pray not as individuals, but as a collective to say those prayers that require a minion, like reading from the Torah, like Kaddish and Baruchu and Kedusha that require a minion. There's another term, Tzibur. Often we translate the word Tzibur as congregation or community. But I will show you in a moment that those translations are inadequate. So let's try to analyze these two terms, Minyan and Tzibur. Are they the same? Now, in common usage, we use them interchangeably. We say we're going to daven with a minion as opposed to davening alone. We say we're going to daven tefillah b'tzibur, the tzibur prayers. But the truth is the two terms are not the same and the difference is crucial. It's subtle, but it's crucial. To understand the term tzibur, let's draw from where it is originally used concerning karbonos, the sacrifices. Remember, we've discussed this before, the sacrifice, the, the pray, our prayers were instituted on the model of the karbonos, the offerings, the sacrifices. And just like with sacrifices, there was a karbon yochid, a an offering brought by an individual, and a karban tzibur, an offering brought by the tzibur. What does that mean? Tzibur means the entire Jewish covenantal community. Tzibur refers not to the 10 or 15 or 100 or 500 people who are in the room. That's the minion, the people in the room who can see each other in a physical sense. Tzibur refers to the entire Jewish covenantal community. The Torah says, Venikdashti Besoch b'nei Yisrael. God says, I will be sanctified within all of my people. Only when all of my people are gathered together and pray as one unit will I be sanctified with what we refer to as public prayer. Well, there's a discrepancy because on the one hand, the Torah says we can only pray to God 
We can only sanctify God's name with prayer when the entire Jewish world is gathered together. On the other hand, we have this idea, just 10 people in a room, 10 men in a room, and we have public prayer. Which is it? The 10 people in the room that form a minion, or the 15, or the 25, the 50, the 500, the people in the room that form a minion are the representatives of Knesses Yisrael. Knesses Yisrael is the entirety of the Jewish people. Every single Jewish person anywhere. Knesses Yisrael, that word Knesses is the same word as Beis HaKnesses. Gathered together, not just the people in the room, but all Jews everywhere. When there is a minion in the room, that minion somehow is more than just the individuals in the room. It is actually a conglomeration of an entire people. And not just the 15 million or so Jews who are alive today, but Knesses Yisrael, what is gathered in the Beit HaKnesses, includes every Jew who has ever lived. It includes all those whose names have been immortalized and made unforgettable, as well as all those Jews who lived in anonymity, who died silently and were buried in unmarked graves without leaving a single memory, without leaving a single footprint on the shifting sands of human destiny. All of them, great or small, big or little, are part and parcel of that invisible Knesset Yisrael, which is represented, or to be more exact, impersonated by the minion of the individuals who are in the room together. But that's not all. The Rav continues. Furthermore, the Knesset Yisrael holds within her embrace every Jew who will ever live on the face of the globe. Generations yet unborn who will at some point in the dark, awesome future serve our people in a variety of ways, all of them that belong to the invisible Knesset Yisrael, represented by the few individuals who happen to show up in the shul on a rainy winter afternoon. And they come to shul and they begin to daven and they say, Ashrei Yoshvei Vesecha, praiseworthy who are those who dwell in your home. Who are those? Who are the Yoshvei Vesecha? Knesses Israel. Every Jew in the world who is living, who has lived, who will live, is incorporated and represented when a minion gathers 
in shul. That's what is represented by our Beit HaKnesses, the gathering of Knesses Yisrael. And it's only then that we are able to praise God and sanctify his name with those prayers that require a minion. What is the mistake, the sin of referring to a shul as a Beit Am? Beit Am, a house of the people, that implies that the significance of shul is the individuals who happen to be in the room. That's a terrible mistake. The Beit Knesset is the home of the great invisible Knesset Yisrael, which cut cuts through all ages in millennia. A Beit Knesset is eternal. A Beit Am is just for contemporaries. But to pray with contemporaries is not enough. To go back to the language of the sacrifices, a sacrifice that's brought by 10 people is not a karban tzibur. It's called a karban shutfim, an offering brought by partners, partners, a group of individuals. Karban tzibur, tefillah b'tzibur, is when the entire covenantal community is gathered and represented. And it is the home of Knesset Yisrael, where God has a rendezvous with man. And that is available only in shul. You can pray as an individual anywhere, but you can only overcome your existential exile and join with every Jew as one organic entity, past, present, and future, with whom God will meet face to face only in Shul. You can only participate in the eternal Jewish people in the home to which we have invited God and he is accepted in shul, like at a death. My dear friends, this is what awaits you. If you have not done so already, it's time to come home. It's time to come back to shul. If you are seriously immunocompromised or you are just staying at home, I respect that. But when the precautions that we are taking at Adath are stronger than the stores you go to and the restaurants you visit and the social gatherings you attend, it's time to come back to shul, to our Beit 
HaKnesset. Our home of prayer at which God is waiting to meet us, all of us, together. I want to move now to a second piece that relates to our Parsha, the Parsha of Toldos. So at the beginning of our Parsha, we learn that Yitzchak and Rivka give birth to twin boys, Esav and Yaakov. And then as young boys, Esav sells his Bechora, his birthright, to Yaakov for a bowl of soup. Let me ask you a question. Is that a valid sale? Something so valuable for a few pennies worth of soup? How is that fair? How is that just? How is that valid? So I want to share with you this story that I heard from Rabbi Malik Biederman. And it's a story about a man who once came to the Baal Shem Tov, the great Baal Shem Tov, who was the person who began Hasidus, the Hasidic movement. This man came to the Baal Shem Tov and he said, Rebbe, I am so poor. I have no income. I have no work. I have no money for food. It's so terrible. I don't know what to do. The Bashemtov asked him, so tell me, how much money do you actually have? What's the total amount of money that you have? And the man said, I have a hundred rubles, not a lot of money. That's all I have. The Bashemtov told him as follows, here's my advice. Take everything you have, the hundred rubles, and the first business opportunity that you have to buy something with the hundred rubles, buy it, and you will be successful. The man left very happy because he had a plan. He didn't understand the plan, but the Baal Shem Tov said to do it, so he was going to do it. He had a plan. On his way home, from visiting the Baal Shem Tov, he had to spend the night at an inn. He walked inside and he asked how much for a room for one night. It's a hundred rubles. A hundred rubles, that's all I have. If I spend that on the room for tonight, I won't have anything to invest. I won't be able to buy the first opportunity, like the Baal Shem Tov said. So this man, this poor man decided he would sleep in the lobby on the floor. In that place, there was no charge. You could sleep on the floor. Fine. Late at night, a group of young Jewish men came in. They were merchants. They had had a very successful, profitable day and they were celebrating. But these people, they were Jews but they were not refined people. They were crude. They were rather sleazy. They were obsessed with money and they started drinking 
They were boisterous. They were obnoxious. They were mocking everything holy, everything upright, just terrible people, but with a lot of money. And one of these drunk Jewish young men yelled out, I would sell my Olam Haba for a hundred rubles. Olam Haba, our share in the world to come, at the end of our life, Hashem will reward us for all of the good deeds that we've done with the spiritual reward in Olam Haba. It's what every Jew is waiting for, to be able to be rewarded for all of our mitzvahs. The poor Jew lying in the corner heard these words and he immediately sat up. Because remember, he was told by the, by the Baal Shem Tov to purchase the first thing that he could for a hundred rubles. So he went over to this young man and he said, I have a hundred rubles. I would like to buy your Olam Haba. You just said you're willing to sell it for a hundred rubles. I have a hundred rubles. I want to buy it. The man says, sure, yeah, sure, fine. Give me the hundred rubles and the Olam Haba, it's all yours. The poor man said, fine, okay, but no, no, no. I want a document with signatures, with witnesses. I want a valid sale. Guy says, sure, who cares? Whatever you want. So they wrote out a document. It was signed with witnesses, done, sold. And this poor man had fulfilled what the Baal Shem Tov told him. First, investment opportunity, a hundred rubles, finished. He did it. He's done. The Baal Shem Tov promised it would work. Don't know how it's going to work, but the Baal Shem Tov promised. The next day, the young man, the merchant, went home. And he told his wife about all of his business success on his trip, all the money he made. And then he said, and I even managed to get an additional hundred rubles from some fool. All I had to do was sell my Olam Haba. His wife was shocked. What? You sold your Olam Haba, your share in the world to come? You sold it? Now, you understand, she herself was not exactly such an Aishas Chayil to begin with, married to this good-for-nothing guy. But somehow it bothered her. She didn't want to be married to a man with no Olam Haba. He tried to placate her. It's nothing. It was a joke. It doesn't mean anything. But she said, it's not a joke. You told me you signed a document. There were witnesses. Get it back. Either you get it back or I want a divorce. That's it. Those are your only two choices. Because I will not be married to someone who has no share in Olam Haba. He realized he had no choice because he wanted to save his marriage. So he went to find this poor Jew and get back his Olam Haba. When he finally found the poor man, who was now penniless, because he had spent his last hundred rubles 
buying the Olam Haba, the poor man refused to sell it back to him. I'm a buyer. I'm not a seller. I don't sell Olam Haba. I bought it fair and square. You sold it. That's it. The young man says, listen, I'll give you double. I'll give you 200 rubles. Forget it. I'll give you a thousand rubles. Are you not listening to me? There's nothing to discuss. I'm not selling at all. Finally, the young man says to him, hold on just a second. Look at me closely. You know, I know, I'm no tzaddik. How much do you think my olam haba is actually worth? The poor man looked him up and down and he stared into his eyes and he said to him, 250,000 dollars and not a penny less. The young man didn't have any choice. So he paid the 250,000 ruble and he got the contract back. He went home, he saved his marriage and he was happy. The poor man was successful on his first investment and he was happy. So everybody's happy. But after a while, the formerly poor man, now a wealthy man, started to have second thoughts. And he went back to the Baal Shem Tov and he told him the whole story. And he said, I feel like I was dishonest. If his Olam Haba was only worth a hundred rubles, which is what I paid for it, how could I have charged him 250,000 rubles to get it back? And if it was truly worth 250,000 rubles, how could I have purchased it for just 100 rubles? The Baal Shem Tov said to him, don't worry, you did nothing wrong. Because the truth is, Olam Haba does not have a price. Its value depends on how much you value it. He was willing to sell it for a hundred rubles. That's what it was worth. When he finally realized it was worth 250,000 rubles and he was ready to pay that, 250,000 rubles was the correct value. As a young man, Esav was willing to sell his birthright to Yaakov for a bowl of lentil soup because that was the value that Esav put on it. At that time, it meant nothing to him. And so trading it for a bowl of soup was reasonable. But years later, when Esav realized how much it was really worth as it would be expressed in a bracha, a blessing from his father Yitzchak, 
and he would not get it because he sold it all those years ago. The Torah tells us, Vayizak za'ka g'dola ad ma'od. Vayizak za'ka g'dola umara. Esav cried out a loud and bitter cry because at that moment he realized it was priceless and he had sold it years earlier for pennies because then he did not appreciate it. But don't mock Esav because we do the same thing. Every one of us has this Esav quality. I want you to be honest with yourself. To yourself, I'm going to try to be honest with myself. In how many areas of life can I say about myself, I wish I understood earlier when I was younger, the value of, and then fill in the blank for yourself. I wish I appreciated earlier when I was younger, the value of. My list is quite long. I don't know about yours. How I would have lived differently if I would have realized then what I understand now. Every one of us is an Esav. The Chavitz Chaim, Rabbi Yisrael Meir Kagan of Radin, the great Torah leader of the early 1900s, he used to say, life is like a postcard. You start out writing a postcard in large letters. It takes up a lot of space, but very quickly you realize you're running out of room. And so you furiously write smaller and smaller, trying to fit in all you need to express. Life is like a postcard. The feat, of course, is to realize the true value at the beginning, when you can appreciate it and benefit from it and make it part of your life. But if we don't, we too, like Asav, will live with regret. And we too will ultimately let out a bitter cry for not having appreciated what is priceless. But there's still hope. Remember the famous proverb, the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago. The second best time is today. So take your list of regrets and start working on it now. This is the second best time to do it. I want to share one last piece with you. <clears throat> if I was writing the Torah, I would have written it differently. 
I would have included in the narrative how wicked Yishmael was. Yishmael, the son of Avraham and Hagar. He tried to kill his baby half-brother Yitzchak. He was violent. He was evil. Of course, Avraham had to expel him from his home, as we read in the Torah a couple of weeks ago. I would have included in the narrative how wicked Esav was, the son of Yitzchak and Rivka, who we meet in our Parsha. He pretended to be pious, to fool his father. He committed murder. He denied God. Of course, the blessing of Yitzchak should not go to him, but to his younger brother Yaakov, who deserves it. That's how I would have written the Torah. But the Torah does not say that. On the contrary, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs points out what the Torah does say is actually quite different. A few weeks ago, we read about how when Avraham expelled Hagar and her, his son, Yishmael, from their home and sent them into the desert, their water ran out and Hagar placed Yishmael under a bush and sat at a distance so she would not see him die. And they're both crying. And the Torah tells us that God heard Yishmael's tears and sent an angel to comfort Hagar, to show her a well of water and to assure her that God would make her son a great nation. Similarly, concerning Esau in our Parsha. The emotional climax of our Parsha, part of which I just quoted to you a moment ago, when Esau finally realizes that the blessing that his father Yitzchak had intended to give him was actually stolen by his brother Yaakov, and there is no blessing left for him. Yitzchak trembled with a great trembling because he realized that he had been fooled. And when Esau heard his father's words, he cried a bitter, loud cry and said, Bless me too, my father. These two passages are among the most powerful descriptions of emotion in the entire Torah. And they're precisely the opposite of what we would expect. So why cause us, through the text of the Torah, to feel their pain, to force us to empathize with them, and then have the narrative of the Torah choose Yitzchak over Yishmael, choose Esav over Yaakov? Why isn't the text simply translated? parent and straightforward and point out to us how wicked Yishmael was, that's why he was rejected. How wicked Esau was, that's why he was rejected. Why does the narrative of the Torah in the text itself portray those two people so sensitively with such emotion? So 
So there's one approach to this question, and it is a fundamental approach to interpreting and understanding the Torah, every part of the Torah. I would refer to it as a Midrashic approach, and that is that the rabbis in the Midrash, who lived during the time of the Talmud, they construct background stories, not in the text, perhaps hinted in the text. All the details that I mentioned are found in the Midrash, not in the text of the Torah. Nowhere does the Torah say that Esau committed murder. Nowhere does the Torah say that Yishmael tried to kill his half-brother. The rabbis give us fleshed-out personalities, and they tell us these stories. They ascribe words and actions to these characters. Now, it's complicated to know if the rabbis mean to assert that these things actually literally happened, or are they providing the context, the sense of the matter, which is often ambiguous and contradictory. Rabbis tell us, they ask the question, when Rivka agreed to marry Yitzchak, how old was she? The Torah doesn't tell us, but the rabbis in the Midrash suggest different opinions. One rabbi says she was 30. One rabbi says she was 13. One rabbi says she was three. What does that mean? Literally, a three-year-old child was married to Yitzchak? Is that meant to be understood literally? Or perhaps do the rabbis mean to discuss the nature of her consenting to go with Eliezer to marry Yitzchak? It's not clear. That's the Midrash. Now that's an important part of how we understand the Torah, but it is not actually in the text of Torah itself. There's another approach. The second approach is a deep, close reading of the text itself. To read it carefully and deeply to, to direct us in how to interpret it and understand it. What does the Torah actually say about Yishmael and Esav? Within the text itself, for neither Yishmael nor Esav do we see anything evil or wicked that would be a reason for why their brother was chosen instead of them. What do we see in the text? Yishmael, in the text of the Torah, is described as a wild man, an aggressive archer. Esau is described as physical, a man of the field, both of them strong, unafraid, rooted in the physical, mundane world. As opposed to Yitzchak and Yaakov, who are described as meditative, scholarly, spiritual. The choosing of Yitzchak over Yishmael and Yaakov over Esav is one of the most fundamental lessons of Judaism, according to Rabbi Sachs. And that is, 
There is more to this world than what we see and taste and feel. The earth is connected to heaven. The physical has a counterpart in the spiritual. That's the meaning of Yaakov's dream that we'll learn about later in the Torah, of a ladder that is rooted on the ground and reaches to the heavens, with the angels ascending and descending. There's a connection between the two. Now, I don't understand why Rivka needed to deceive her husband Yitzchak. But Rivka did understand that Yaakov needed the blessing of physical plenty, which is what Yitzchak blessed him with. God should grant you from the dew of the heavens and the fat of the earth, because you can't survive if you're only spiritual and meditative. So Yaakov needed the blessing of what is essentially Esav's world, the physical mundane world. We discussed this earlier this week in a different context. But you can't find meaning in life if you are only physical. If you don't comprehend that there is something beyond ourselves, something that connects all of us outside of biology, something that transcends nature, namely God and all that God teaches us. The clash of Yishmael versus Yitzchak, the clash of Esau versus Yaakov is the clash of opposing worldviews. Rav Soloveitchik, the Rav, wrote, the central figure in Jewish history has not been the king, not the general, not the prime minister, but the teacher surrounded by children. We have kings and generals and prime ministers, and they're important because they're necessary and we respect them, but they are not central. Our central figure is Yitzchak, not Yishmael. It's Yaakov, not Esav. Our central figures are those who are strong enough to live and flourish in this world while being spiritual enough to give life meaning beyond ourselves. The unfolding of the book of Bereshis is the repeated choosing of one worldview over another. One worldview is rejected, another is embraced. Noah is embraced, the rest of the world at his time was rejected. Abraham was embraced, his brother Haran was rejected. Yitzchak was embraced, not Yishmael. Yaakov was embraced, not Esau. And it is Yaakov who is known to us in Jewish tradition as Yisrael Saba, our grandfather Israel, who establishes the foundation for our worldview. 
which is, to quote the words of Rabbi Aaron Lichtenstein, we too, disciples of Yaakov, have a continuous obligation to strive for a life of meaningful spiritual fulfillment that goes beyond life's functional necessities. My friends, I want to wish you a beautiful evening and a great Shabbos. And I look forward to seeing all of you soon in person.